The Final Edition Radio Hour is a work of satire intended for people who own books, gentrify neighborhoods, and say they like kale. Please consume responsibly the satire, that is. Tony Hendra. Jeff Chrysler. Happy New Year. Thanks, old boy. You too. Are you ready to take the Final Edition Radio Hour headlong into 2016? Indeed I am. And I thought we'd let my old friend and legendary editor of Harper's Magazine, Lewis Lapham, guide us there. Oh, really? Yes. Lewis is a great scholar of Mark Twain, the Ur-American satirist, and of the great Roman satirists, mostly of the first century AD. Don't you mean C.E.? Church of England? No, common era. You know, be inclusive of we Jews. Never use it. Anno Domini is what it was, and I'm sticking with it. Anyway, Lewis is a scholar of guys like Juvenal, Marshall, Petronius, etc. During the ghastly Bush years, he wrote thunderous Roman-style satires in Harper's front-of-the-book section notebook about the pretensions and ambitions of the Bush version of Pax Americana and the various sacks of taste-free sewage who ran it, like Cheney, Rumsfeld and Tom DeLay. Um, in American English, please, Tony? Okay, okay. Look, Lewis is a funny guy in his quiet, scholarly way. He once told a story at the Moth about how, as a young reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, he went to interview the young trophy wife of a just-deceased media mogul. She greeted him at the door with a bottle of champagne and the quote, This is the happiest day of my life. They then fucked for the rest of the day. Goddamn liberal media. He was also a big Carlin fan. Anyway, I thought it would be interesting to talk to him about satire in general. And? I was right. Incredible, insightful commentary on satire past, present and future. Perfect, especially since 2016 will be dominated by this absurd election. Yes, we and our audience would be well served to listen to all three parts of this interview. Three parts, three? You can do it, Jeffy, baby. Oh, God. Well, will there be dick jokes first? Of course there will be dick jokes first. Oh, good. Because that's the cutting-edge satire I've come to expect from us. From who? The The Final final Edition Radio Radio Hello. We are a peaceful armed militia, and we're occupying an empty fish and wildlife building in Oregon because we found an unfair mandatory sentence, and we are protesting by talking about something else. Our demands are, 1. The U.S. government must cease being the U.S. government except farm subsidies. 2. We need socks and snacks because we are prepared to stay barricaded here for years. Years. We just didn't bring enough socks. Three. What do you call a dog with no legs? Nothing. He can't come anyway. Four. Makalakahai, makahaini ho. Five. Amen. Eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get stupid and crazy when you're hungry. Better? Better. Hey, where are all the cops? God, if we were black, they'd be everywhere. Snickers. You're not you when you're hungry. What are you talking about? It was fine. It had some twists. Some of them I kind of thought might happen. Others were new information, (sighs) as you might get with any other acceptable action flick. Flick? He had once been a friend of the Resistance, or at least he had seemed like a friend. 
but his heart had been seized by the First Order. Ron, I'm not saying it was bad. It was a Star Wars movie. It had the excitement of the first Star Wars. It had half the plot points of the first Star Wars. Exactly. I mean, can you remember when you saw Star Wars for the first time? Yeah, I saw it when it came out. It was fine. Fine? Yeah, it had new special effects. It was interesting. And then I went home and didn't think about it anymore. He had worked side by side with the Resistance in the bookkeeping department at Devon Realtors. Now, he used the Force. For evil. Are you with the Star Trek people? I'm Is just, that it? I'm not, I'm not, Are you one of them? I don't Are you from the other about... side? That would explain it. Come, Ron, Ron. Why can't you just admit that this movie is the epic of our age? Ron, we I live calm, inside calm, Star calm, Wars! Calm down, Ron. Holy hell, it was fine. Two thumbs up, nine dollars well spent. I don't know what you want from me. And now the final editions, New Year's Resolution. I promise not to kill again. Those would be mine. My New Year's resolution is to kill more prostitutes on Grand Theft Auto. This year, I think I'll uh, stop tweeting pictures of my cock. No, no, come on. Oh, all right. This year, I resolved to lose 20 pounds because I got cancer. This year, uh, I resolved to quit hitting my wife. Oh, thank you, honey. Shut up! I hope my New Year's resolution will be 5,000 by 4,000 pixels. This year, I resolved to grow my own pot. My New Year's resolution is to bring snacks the next time I take over a federal building. I resolved to be a more peaceful and compassionate human being. Oh, thank you, honey. Shut up! Welcome to our roundtable on Syria. This week, the commander of the Saudi-backed rebel group was killed. That's good for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and his ally, Russian President Vladimir Putin, and bad for Saudi Arabia, obviously. But what about our own national interests? We put it to our panel of experts. John Lawton from the Brookings Institute. The death of a Saudi-backed Syrian rebel leader. Is it good or bad for America? Well, I don't have the slightest goddamned idea. Perry Wallace, Middle East correspondent from the Washington Post. Good or bad for America? Sorry, I zoned out on the question. Larry Ellis, editor-in-chief at the Weekly Standard. Damn, I, I was kind of counting on you not having time for me. And that's our expert view on Syria. Tomorrow, Iran and Saudi Arabia have broken off relations. Does that change anything in particular? Today on Things That Are Headlines for some reason. Comedy Central Roast was a turning point in Justin Bieber's career. Channing Tatum does a lip-sync battle against his wife on The Tonight Show. Taylor Swift and Calvin Harris enjoy adventurous Christmas celebration together. Victoria Beckham wished her fans happy holidays by posting an Instagram picture of herself and her family. And Amy Schumer tells Barbara Walters she might want to have kids someday, but she's not sure how realistic that is. These were real headlines on Things That Are Headlines for some reason. This is the Fear Report. Approximately 35,000 people died in traffic accidents in the United States last year. ISIS claims responsibility. Yes, we killed them all. If America does not surrender, half a million people will die next year from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. First the cults came for your children. Now they're here for your pets. Repeat after me. Hail Satan. The Drug Enforcement Agency warns of a new drug called Roundies. 
Amateur chemists synthesize it from ordinary roast chicken. We got people coming into the Costco buying 20, 30 whole chickens. They say their church is having a raffle. Meanwhile, local police stations nationwide are running short on military-grade tanks and nuclear missiles. Should we be concerned? We ask an expert. Yes. And we interview child expert Glenn Hibbert. Glenn, what does it mean when a baby cries? It might be autistic. Stay tuned to the Fear Report. Otherwise, they win. Man on the street! Chipotle has had outbreaks of neurovirus and E. coli. The final edition asks the man on the street, what do you think? Oh, I once went into a Chipotle bathroom and it, and it found a bra. I don't know if that's related. I thought it was pronounced Chipotle. More like Chipotle. Has that already been done? Chipotle makes you sick. Can't you get sick at an American restaurant? Here's a trick with Chipotle. When you order, order the neurovirus first. That way, you get more. I didn't get neurovirus at Chipotle because I was wearing a condom. E. coli! Guess I shouldn't have ordered my burrito with pussy. Ha ha ha! Oh, all employees must watch hands after using the restroom. With luck, we'll be back with more of the final edition Radio Hour. Pull up your pants, we're back! It's the Final Edition Radio Hour! Hi, I'm Tony Hendra. Welcome back to the Final Edition Radio Hour. I'm very honoured in this week's show to present the first of a three-part interview with Lewis Lapham, the legendary editor of Harper's Magazine and currently editor-in-chief of the extraordinary Lapham's Quarterly. You will not regret Googling Lapham's Quarterly and becoming a subscriber, for its intent is to sublimely subvert pretty much everything Google holds dear. I asked Lewis to share his thoughts on the subject of satire and its role, both currently and historically, in what we laughingly refer to as our democracy. Okay, so I'm speaking with Lewis Lapham, who is the editor-in-chief of Lapham's Quarterly. Is that correct? That's correct. And who was for almost 30 years the editor of Harper's Magazine, one of the nation's most respected organs of intelligent dissent, and possibly one of the most distinguished, if not the most distinguished, political and social essayist in the writing of the United States at the present time. Would you say those were accurate descriptors? I would say it was a little over the top, but I'm uh, <laughs> delighted with it. <laughs> well, indeed. Same time, I'm delighted to be here. But I'm also, I'm also fascinated that given these extraordinary credentials, as his co-writer on his memoir organized a tribute to George Carlin a year after his death, because we had talked about George Carlin in the past. I asked you to do one of the tributes. You did an extraordinary tribute to him, which was shorter and finer than any other tribute, even though there were tributes from stars like Ben Stiller, Whoopi Goldberg, Louis C.K., and many others. So I wanted to get the conversation going on what it was or what it is about George that prompted you to actually say things like, George Carlin is in the tradition of Ambrose Bierce, H.L. Mencken, Philip Wiley, Sinclair Lewis, Terry Southern, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, Kurt Vonnegut, and Tom Paine. And the burden, I think, of your appreciation of George was that he stood up and, thinking out loud, proposed that he did not agree with the official version. Yes, I mean, uh, the... 
he did it very well. He did it in in uh, language that, like Paine's and like Twain's, was easy to understand. It wasn't about himself. He was not trying to show off or in any way be smarter than anybody else in the room. And he wasn't doing it to vengefully or snarkily or ironically. He was doing it passionately and honestly and because it was something that these were sores in the body politic that he clearly saw. Twain used to think of satire as a kind of refining fire <laughs> and, uh, the, um, to burn away the hospitality tents of Kant under which uh, the society is blissfully and happily content to live most of the time. The Archibald MacLeish was himself a fine poet, at one time a librarian of Congress. I can't remember the exact quote, but his point was that dissenting opinion was when somebody broke loose momentarily from the herd and managed to say what he or she himself thought had seen, understood, guessed at, but was true to his own or her own observation. Twain played for laughs. Laughs, he thought, were the great healing, cauterizing bomb to heal the wounds that he knew everybody, man, woman, or child in his audience had come up against in the course of living in what was, in Twain's mind in the late 19th century, a truly brutal society. He once said that a society that is the sum of its vanity and greed is not a society at all. It is a state of war. And Carlin, I think, saw it somewhat the same way. And he was, as was Twain, a, a, a humanist, an idealist, not a cynic, at least as I understood him. I didn't think Twain was a cynic. I certainly didn't think Paine was a cynic, and, and Vonnegut was not a cynic. Uh, Absolutely not, no. And, the, uh, and that was the strength of, of uh, Carlin's satire, and that's why people wanted to listen to and were heartened by what he said, I think. Not, not amused, uh, not condescending, right. but genuinely heartened. Try, and here's a man who's trying to you know, speak to the true terms of the contract <laughs> under which we happen to be living. Right. One of the things you said, actually, was that he sent his humor on a moral errand. Yes, he did. Which, which I think is a Twainism, is it not? Yes. Well, that's, I also applied right. that to Twain. That's right. my phrase. That's your Twain's. phrase. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, that's a wonderful way to describe George. And another thing you said, which I think was very much in the front of, uh, of George's mind at all times, was that he wanted to preserve his fellow American from becoming shriveled sheep. Right. That's a Twain that I... That's yeah. a phrase I borrowed from Twain. Shriveled sheep was uh, one of his phrases, and the... Uh, There's another one, too, I, I noticed in the autobiography, where he says, we are discreet sheep. Yeah. We, we look to see how, where the drove is going, and then we follow the drove. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Most people do that. I mean, it's... Uh, Right, but his point was more generous than simply demeaning people. It was that people actually know the truth privately, but they don't express it. Right. Because the drove doesn't express it. And to hear it expressed 
publicly is heartening. It makes you think, well, I'm not alone in, in this. Right, yeah. But it's threatening to those who want you to remain cheap. Yes, and I think that's, I mean, I, I know that Twain drew big audiences. The, uh, how big were the audiences that Carlin attracted? Oh, they were sensible. I mean, he would play, his, his average was probably between 1,200 and 1,500 seats. Well, you see, that's gr- good. I mean, it's, because we're not talking with, with, about mass entertainment. I mean, I don't think satire works as mass entertainment because... It's too disturbing. It's, it's too yeah. threatening. Yeah. People go to the movies or people go to the Broadway shows because they want to escape or they want to be lulled into some sort of complacent and contempt. You know, sheep, so the sheep may safely graze. <laughs> oh, getting into bark now. And uh, you can't safely graze on right. the satire of Carlin. Right. Or Twain, or, Twain. or yeah. so on. Yes, I mean, actually, I think one of the one of the one of the most interesting things that you also said was that he performed live. I mean, he did his HBO yeah. specials, but he did them once every two years, and that right. was he described that as an advertisement for himself. Right. Um, but what he really did was build a build a vast audience, twelve hundred or fifteen hundred at a time, of living, breathing human beings who were actually listening to his words, right? Not listening yes. to a picture of his words. Yeah. And I think that is where, as you put it, he provided a counterpoint to the tragedy of the human predicament. I think that's why satire is better suited to the stage or to the lecture. Twain used to do it live, too. As you know, he was a constant figure, a leading figure on the American lecture circuit in the late 19th century, which was a, a big and... I mean, ongoing means of education and entertainment everywhere in the country. And he also lectured in Australia, in India, in Germany, in England. In India, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Uh, the, uh, and I think it needs a live audience. I, see, I think it's very hard to make satire work on television because it has to be cut to time. And, you you know, you have, I don't know, whatever it is, 12, 8, 13 minutes, and then you cut to a car commercial or a beer commercial, which is the exact antithesis of humane expression. I mean, and the trouble with society as a whole is that most of our language is the language of advertising. It's the mm-hmm. language of the political yes. campaigns. It's the average. It's the 15,000 ads we see every day, you know, on billboards in the back of taxis, in magazines, you know, in elevators. <clears throat> the language of advertising is really debilitating. <laughs> well, if the attitude is one of, basically, of pleading, it's asking you or trying to convince you to buy something. I mean, right, and, yeah, and sure. it's, it's, yeah. that is the antithesis of satire, which is certainly not pleading with you, telling you the truth, right. um, or truth-telling. It's giving you something. It's not trying to scrunch something out of you. So you would, but I think, with, in, in, at the, actually, at the end of your, your, your wonderful analysis of his autobiography, you say this. We'll come back to Twain, I think, several times. But you say, since we're talking about this, you've made a great case for Twain not simply being a sort of folksy folklorist, right. which is the kind of niche that, as you said, the reviewers of his autobiography when it came out at the New York Times and the New Yorker chose to see him as an amiable after-dinner speaker, a man right. who told funny stories and yeah. smoked cigars and wore, wore a white suit, and that he was, in fact, far more, as one of his uh, executives put it, generous, intuitive, and sympathetic, but undiluted, merciless, and final, 
as well. Right. So then you say, as your envoi to the review, you say, our contemporary brigaded satirist doesn't play with fire. It doesn't play with what Twain called painted fire, right? That's correct. Doesn't play with fire. The heavy calibers of Twain's humor have gone missing from our news and entertainment media because the audiences made for television don't look with favor upon the kind of jokes that cast doubt on the guarantee of happiness and the promise of redemption. Taught to believe that democracy is something quiet, orderly, and safe, a peaceful idea supportive of think tank viewings with alarm, and the keeping of pets as fragrant as Alan Greenspan and General David Petraeus, they prefer the safer forms of satire fit for privileged and frightened children. Twain was an adult. I think that's a pretty good end to that piece. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever I wrote that three or four years ago, I, I would still stand behind every word of that. So you wouldn't see this, this sort of supposed exemplars of modern satire like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert as satirists, or would you see them as something more diluted, or would you see them as not satirists at all? Well, I can't really answer that question because I have never paid much attention, right. and I should have, I guess, to the Daily Show. And so I've only seen Stewart, you know, maybe five or ten times, and I'm same thing's true of Colbert. My sense of satire going weak in the knees is, is more along the lines of somebody like Bill Maher, who I've seen a couple of times, and simply see him as a front man for the established order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, really? The, I, I think that would be most irritating to Bill Maher. <laughs> well, I, I don't know Bill Maher, but, so... I mean, he did make a good point, I think, when he said that you could say anything you wanted about the pilots that flew the planes into the trade towers, but you could not say that they were cowards. And for that, he was severely punished by the authorities. I think they took him off the air for a couple of weeks. Yes, indeed. But but he was right about that. And so maybe I'm doing him a disservice, too. But too often, when I see what passes for satire, I I think it's a way of letting the audience gently off the hook. In other words, okay, we see through the screen of lies. We can distinguish appearance from reality. We know that we are governed by fools and led to our deaths by pompous ideologues along the lines of Dick Cheney or Paul Wolfowitz and so on. I mean, most of the establishment in in Washington and many of the better-known columnists for the major newspapers. But it's an... But okay... All of us here, you know, watching Stewart or, or watching Colbert, watching Marr, okay, we're in on the joke, and uh, good for us. And that's as far as it, it has to go. I guess that's heartening, but uh, there's not enough uh, edge in it to, to make it really heartening, I don't think. Well, I would say that one of the key points, even of what passes for the strongest satire on television, or even the strongest satire in the, in the comedy clubs, is that it's almost always about individual politicians or individuals on television in some way, pundits or writers. It's never about the system itself. It never calls into question the underlying principles of the system in exactly, or exposes exactly what the system is, which, as you say, is a, this is not a democracy, it's a state of war. And it's even pretty obvious from the people strutting around the countryside with uh, pistols strapped to their hips that it is indeed a sort of slow motion civil war that we're in at the moment but no one even john stewart and colbert will not come out and say things like that yes they pick easy targets right in Fox other news, words, for example in other words to they don't pick on jamie diamond 
let's say, mm-hmm. and Chase Bank. Indeed. The final edition does. But <laughs> They don't pick on, you know, when, when Kissinger was in, in power, they don't pick on Kissinger. But it, it's not just calling him a war c- criminal. The more damaging way to approach Kissinger would be to compare him accurately to a hairdresser. In other words, here we have an American establishment that, that is, by and large, poorly educated, doesn't speak languages, knows very little of history, is easily fooled by somebody like uh, Kissinger, and who can present them with a bespoke set of opinions. Kissinger kind of pretends that he's essentially the avatar reborn incarnation of Metternich, temporarily alone from the, <laughs> the uh, right. Congress of Vienna. That's you, right, the balance you, of power. He talks about the balance of power. Right? And, and yeah. you really have to think of him in terms of fashion designer, who's providing fashionable opinions for the, the gentry. <laughs> right. <laughs> the final edition Radio Hour will be back in seconds. We're back now. It's time for some more of the Final Edition Radio Hour. It's much more devastating, I think, if you can approach uh, Kissinger along those kinds of lines than if to call him a war criminal, because a war criminal, although true, is become such a cliché term, right. and it's been used so loosely by people on both sides of the, you know, the Republican Democratic divide that it's lost its it's lost its force we take war criminals seriously the thing to, to do with somebody like Kissinger is to make him clearly a fool <laughs> and there's a lot of better or a flunky yeah yeah Right. No, I mean, the diminution of people is, is something that great satirists have always done. Yeah. I mean, that's a basic technique of satire, is to call, yeah. as, as you said. I mean, and, that's, and that's not snark demeaning. It, it's just putting it in a perspective that, that uh, holds the... the uh, it's the emperor's new clothes. It, it's that kind of approach. Right. You actually quote this from his autobiography, What a King Must Suffer, for he knows deep down in his heart that he's a poor, cheap, wormy thing like the rest of us. A sarcasm. Yeah. I mean, anybody with any degree of self-knowledge would know that. But we, as a society, we we, uh, flee from that kind of self-knowledge. We do everything we can not to be alone, but to be constantly on the cell phone, constantly absorbed, constantly uh, distracted. But we also want to be fulfilled, don't we, and empowered. And and all these all these impossible words that, that yeah. mean mean really nothing except I want to be happier than I am right now. Well, yeah, but that, that's something that the uh, if I don't mind saying so that is your problem. <laughs> <laughs> and right. it, it is of course the problem that the advertising uh, you know the product uh, people try to uh, do for you try to uh, present you with with you can outsource your life to experts who will provide the proper accessories and the uh, put you through the uh, correct routines and keep your mind on, on process and God's sake away from any night alone with your own thoughts. Sure, sure. <laughs> and provide you with opinions. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So one thing that you said reading Twain's autobiography is to be reminded that in one way or another the American is an improvisation, the character in a play of his or her own invention, hoping that the audience, fortunately consisting of actors as makeshift as oneself, will accept the performance as par. Right. I mean, that, that seems to me both 
a brilliant insight into Twain, but also suggests in it may just be my hang up with improvisation as a way to get at the truth, but it, it seems to me that that's part of the makeup of, of Twain and part of what he handed down to those who came after him. Oh, well, yes. I mean, he, his life is a wonderful uh, adventure and a constant improvisation. I mean, he starts as a youth as a, in a small town in, in Missouri on the Mississippi River goes away to Philadelphia when he's still in his early teens and learns the work of a printer in a Philadelphia print shop, comes back to Mississippi, goes into the, uh, becomes a steamboat pilot from his experience as a steamboat pilot, gives himself the pseudonym Mark Twain, and then comes the Civil War, and he has no truck with the Civil War. He's he's not going to fight on the Confederate side, nor is he going to fight on the Union side, so he goes to California and goes through the experience of the silver mines in, in Nevada, becomes a newspaper writer both in Virginia City and in San Francisco. And he's he's always learning things firsthand. And, mm-hmm. and he's not he's not he's not reading travel books. You actually say here that he conversed with murderers and harlots. He learned the commonplaces of lust and corruption, violence and subordination and cruelty. Yeah. A mise en scene in which a man who didn't see clearly didn't live long enough to hear the punchline. That's true, <laughs> yeah. Which is certainly, you're not dealing with a version, someone else's version of these experiences, no. or a camera's version. And Twain continues all through his life. I mean, he's, again, as a lecturer, he improvises on stage. I mean, he doesn't, I'm sure he has some canned speech that he's, he knows he's going to give, but he also can shift it to circumstances and, and uh, depends on the size of the room, the mood of the audience, uh, you know, the... He's always prepared to make it up. He, he traveled to Europe something like 80 times. I mean, he, he's constantly curious and he's constantly learning. He speaks, he learns languages. He, he learns to converse in Italian, also in German. And he reads in, in those languages as well as in English. He has an enormous circle of acquaintance. He probably saw more of America, of 19th century America, than any other author of his generation. Not only saw more of the country, but knew more different kinds of people, not only the murderers and harlots in Nevada, but also a friend of of John Hay, a friend of uh, Robert Barron's in Wall Street, friend of, you know, not necessarily friend, but acquainted with Teddy Roosevelt. He was a man who, who, who touched the society at many of its uh, services. That's another thing that gives him the strength of his writing because it's grounded in what he himself has seen and thought and uh, maybe understood. Yes, well, I mean, you, you make the point that, that, that Twain's understanding of the Constitution is not that it exists for the ambition of the state, I think you say, that yeah. it exists for the, yeah. for the independence of the individual. Right. And that, 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 that Twain was mostly interested in his fellow citizens as citizens. Yes. Members of that body politic that ought yeah. to be. Right, not yeah. because, you know, one doesn't love one's fellow citizens because they're rich or famous, but because they are one's fellow citizens. And he, he actually understood that. I mean, he would have that same feeling. In, in, the, in the citizenship would be the President of the United States as well as the uh, two-bit gambler. And Yeah, one of the, actually mentioning, I, I love that thing about Roosevelt, where Teddy Roosevelt, there was this horrible massacre in the Philippines yeah. of the Moros, where the they were trapped in a in a crater. They were trapped in the crater of a volcano, and right. the uh, American military moved up. And within the crater, there were maybe four or five hundred natives 
armed with a few of them, the men, women, and children, the men armed with uh, machete knives, and the, uh, but the American military situated itself on, on the, uh, around the overhanging edge of the cup and, and just shot them all with uh, Gatling guns and, and, and rifles, murdered every single one of them. And for this magnificent show of military prowess, Roosevelt sent a telegram of congratulations to, I believe the man's name was General Leonard Wood, right. after whom there is still an important military base name you know, somewhere in, I can't remember whether it's in Arizona or in Florida, but Twain was just appalled at that message. He describes the President's joy over the splendid achievement of his fragrant pet, right. General Wood. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's where I, you know, borrowed the pra- phrase, to yeah. fragrant pet, Petraeus. I mean, Petraeus, I mean, our military commanders, and I don't wish to disappoint you, Tony, but they're pretty third rate. And <laughs> I, have I've always thought they were first rate. Uh, it's always been you my know, conviction that they're really the top of the line. They're not, and this was this is usually true at, at the beginning of any war. I mean, the uh, people who were in command of the American army going into World War II were, by and large, incompetent. And, and finally, you get some good line officers that come up through the ranks as NCOs or majors and, and show them prove their worth on, on under fire. Same thing happened in the Civil War. I mean, the first five generals that. Lincoln has leading the army, the Potomac, or Popinjays, competence of one kind or another, and then Grant appears out of the swamps in, in uh, Shiloh. Uh, the, uh, but but the uh, and the other thing is, you know, we talk constantly talk about the magnificence of the American military, and, and American army hasn't won a war uh, <laughs> since 1945. And it arrived late. Yeah, at, at but again, I mean, the advertising is is pretty. But the advertising, of course, is in order to, to sell, in order to prosper the uh, defense industry. We keep spending more and more money on weapons and on our military that is proven. Our military really is advertising. I mean, it's supposed to be, there it is. You see the carriers sailing into ports in the Mediterranean or the Red Sea, and that's supposed to be enough to deter prospective enemies. The, the historian A.J.P. Taylor marvelous British historian, wrote wonderful books about Yeah, I attended his classes at Cambridge. You did? Well, he once said, the secret of being a great power, or of remaining a great power, is never to try to use the great power. Right. (laughs) And every time we try to use it, it's just an embarrassment. Yes, we get bogged down. I mean, the the invasion of Iraq after the trade towers was the the, the people in Washington were, were talking about the demonstration effect. That was one of their favorite phrases. Forward deterrence and we will show the world that we are invincible. That was the whole. That was one of the lines of reasoning for the for the invasion in the Pentagon. And of course, they what they managed to do is prove the exact opposite. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's a misuse of one's uh, military. Yes, indeed. One of the things that I, that I wanted to to bring up, you make the parallel quite often in talking about Twain between. Um, his Gilded Age, which was a phrase he actually invented, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and our own. It's like a favorite theme of yours. One of the things that I've noticed in your writing, especially in the Bush years, in Harper's, was that you frequently dropped into, well, I wouldn't say dropped into, but you, you, you frequently wrote in a manner which was not unlike Twain's, in, in terms of being a commentator 
of great depth and flourish with the sort of memorable phrases. And one particular article which I dug up was a notebook, which was a front of the book feature of Harper's Magazine, uh, and still is, I guess, which was entitled When in Rome. And it was uh, it was written in January 2003, before uh, Iraq had become the swamp that it later did. But the premise of the piece was that the Bush administration had, like other administrations, the Kennedy administration, for example, had started thinking of itself as Roman, and that you welcomed this, but you found it wanting in certain rather crucial areas. Um, and and I, I, I found that I found that to be splendid in many ways, but not the least because it was it was almost a Roman piece of satire. It was like a, a juvenile kind of level piece of analysis of the pretensions of these idiots. I mean, do you yourself, when you write in that mode, do, do you see yourself as a satirist in that same grand tradition? Yeah, sometimes I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a reader of uh, Twain. I'm a re- I like to read juvenile. I like to read Bierce. And Mencken? And so, yeah, and, yeah. and Mencken and uh, Mr. Dooley. Quite a number of them. I mean, Swift, Shakespeare is wonderful in that vein when he, when he wants to be. So I don't do it consciously. A lot depends on, of course, what you read. My writing has never gathered much notice from the from the literary establishment in, in New York or in Washington. But, right. but that's because I think I'm working in a different tradition. I'm not reading this, 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 the same things that they're reading. <laughs> I sometimes think that the columnists for the New York Times only read the Atlantic magazine and their own paper. Right, right, exactly, absolutely. So. I mean, I'm frustrated by this too. I was frustrated with Carlin, working with Carlin, because I, I regarded him as a major, major figure. And it was impossible to convince any of the coterie that you're yeah. describing of that fact. I mean, right. even though you could see in his work that it not, not only was it popular, but it was Im- immensely influential. And it had all the right elements to convince people. And it, it runs back to that thing of sort of trying to reduce dangerous satire or dangerous satirists to, as you say, an after-dinner speaker. And there was a rather wonderful quote. This is from David Brooks. Right. And David Brooks wrote a piece titled I Am Not Charlie Hebdo, which, to which one answers, you are certainly not. But um, one of the analyses he has in here is that most of us don't actually engage in the sort of deliberately offensive humor that that newspaper, meaning Charlie Hebdo, specializes in. We might have started out that way, he says. When you're 13, it seems daring and provocative to épater la bourgeoisie, which was a phrase invented, I believe, by Baudelaire when he was in his 20s, yeah. hardly a child. Uh, to stick a finger in the eye of authority, to ridicule other people's religious beliefs. But after a while, that seems puerile. And I remi- I'm reminded of a word that was constantly applied to the National Lampoon, that the stronger its satire got and the deeper it went, it was always described as sophomoric. We yeah. were constantly described as sophomoric. And... Um, Michael O'Donoghue, one of my co-editors there, once said that sophomoric is liberal for funny. Again, it's this diminution of anything that disturbs people to the point where they're having to confront their own prejudices or they're having to confront their own beliefs in a chimera. So he goes on to say, in most societies, this is wonderful, in most societies there's the adults' table and there's the kids' table. The people who read Le Monde, or the establishment organs, are at the adults' table. The jesters, the holy fools, and people like Anne Coulter and Bill Maher are at the kids' table. They're not granted complete respectability but they are heard because in their unguided missile manner they sometimes say necessary things that no one else is saying. I mean, to separate, I don't know, Mel Brooks, Lenny Bruce, uh, Ambrose Bierce, put them all at the kids' table, and Robert Benchley sits at the kids' table, I mean, come on. It's uh, it's a, just an extraordinary reflex they have, which which seems to want to take the teeth out of, of what you write, what I write, what, yeah, yes, you know, yes, what, what Twain wrote. 
Yeah, they, they are. And the adults say, well, that's because they spend so much of their time in the company of the, uh, the good and the great, right? I mean, they interview President Obama. They go to dinner in Washington with uh, Senator Kerry. They, they can't get any distance on the people they're writing about because they want to be thought of or think of themselves as part of the establishment, among themselves, among the good and the great. And when you want to belong to the club, then you, you have good table manners, you know, you speak politely to the waiters and, and you ask your dinner companion, who's presumably the chairman of a bank, you know. Or the secretary of the treasury. Which or the secretary of the treasury, whether he had a good day on the golf course. And he's, you know, he's a nice man. I mean, he presumably loves his wife. He doesn't uh, throw himself out of windows. Or I actually remember Brooks writing a column once about that, about how unfair it was to pick on politicians because in private they were really such nice people. And that's probably true, but so what? The point is, what's important is their function in public. But the David Brookses of the world want to be part of the, uh, the inner circle. They, they want to be uh, the, the most pathetic, if you haven't read it, as a column I once wrote about the passing of Tim Russer. It was two days of mourning uh, right. on the networks. Constantly, people were showing up. Tom Brokaw, I mean, everybody that, you know, was anybody on, in, in television news stop by to, to shed a tear and, and the uh, letters of congratulation from people like, uh, I don't know, secretaries of state and, and presidents of foreign countries and Bruce Springsteen and so forth and so on. And it was sickening because, you know, everybody's saying this is the greatest journalist of our time. And, and he was not. He might have been a nice man, but he never asked a hard question. He was there to facilitate the voice of, of power. He was not there to speak truth to power. He was there to pass along the wisdom of power to the American people. And that's what... And perhaps to suggest some fine-tuning every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally, essentially he just was pouring butter on everybody's head, but occasionally he'd add a little salt to the butter. That that was his recipe. (laughs) Right. They don't like it when I roll my R's. Here if I do it more. Next on, the final edition. Okay, I think you should do all of this. What? I, I, I'm just... I you don't I improvise, that you were telling me? No, I can't improvise this. There's not enough substance to get my teeth into. After these messages, the final edition radio hour will go to pi squared. We will be right back after this. <laughs> Now do something French. Imagine drinking wine. Just did. We'll be back to discuss on the final edition Radio Hour. Okay, these are incomprehensible. That's enough. We'll be back soon with more of the final edition Radio Hour! All those Sunday morning TV shows are, 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 are that. And I, I can't I end up listening to George Will or, or David Brooks. David Brooks does it for PBS. But it, it's swill slopped into the bowl of the... Uh, yeah. No, I mean, it's actually, and I think... I've heard, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've heard David Brooks described as NPR's sort of straight talker, you know. He tells it like it is at the New York Times, and it's, uh, it's just extraordinary how words don't mean what they mean, yeah. which comes back to George, of course, because words were everything. Well, he wants to teach a moral lesson at all the time. It's all about right. character. It's never about money. If people are poor or unsuccessful or unhappy, it's because they haven't learned humility or they haven't learned the meaning of... I mean, he's got a column this morning in the paper about how to be grateful. (laughs) (laughs) 
We have food stamps. Uh, yeah, there, there used to be a Catholic priest, Cardinal Sheehan. Do you remember him? I remember him very well. And he used to do... Sheen, actually, his name Sheen, was Sheen, I think, yeah. yeah. But he would give self-improving, helpful lectures. Right, on Sunday nights. On Sunday nights, yeah. right. I mean, you could think of our, essentially, the Washington media establishment as a college of cardinals. Yes, indeed. I mean, look what they're, they're going on about this year's election, the presidential election. First of all, it isn't even an election. It's, it's a staging of, of the legend of democracy. It's, it's this pageant kind of thing you put on a state fair and prolonging it over two years with candy-coated sound bites and bombast bursting in air to prove that our flag is still there. I mean, the, the pretense, the, it's a show. It's like the Super Bowl. And the fact is that we don't have in this country a working democracy. What we have is a oligarchy, but people want to believe otherwise. And, and the show gets more and more expensive to put on because it's hard to keep an audience. I mean, in I think all but six or seven states in the United States, one's individual vote does not count. Certainly that's true in New York because of the way the electoral college works. It's a majority, and the majority is always going to be Democratic, blue, and same thing in California. And right. then there are other states that are going to be red no matter what. And the, so it's meaningless. And the, the So what you want, I mean, a vote in, in New York is like a fraction of a vote in, say, Indiana. Well, not because even in Indiana, because it isn't even a fraction. The vote, the electoral vote counts, and there are certain swing states, Ohio, Florida, right. Virginia, maybe, North Carolina, where it actually could go one way or another, where, where there are enough Democrats and enough Republicans, to, so the margin might could tilt it one way or another. But in most states, that's just not true. And, and in a state where the electoral vote is already established and has been for the last 10 years, the individual vote doesn't really matter very much. Right. And the American people are not stupid. They know this. And the people like Brooks in Washington are always complaining about how Americans don't vote and how we now have less than 50% of the eligible voters vote in a presidential election. There's nobody to vote for. Their vote doesn't count. Well, but also, if you don't want to vote for either of the two main candidates because you don't like either of them, and you think they're both hopelessly compromised, you're not going to vote. What's the point? Yeah, that's what I mean. And there's no chance to vote for a third candidate. So they spend more and more and more money and and take more and more time in order to try to drum up interest, get an audience. And so now you're, we've now got 15 candidates on the Republican side. I mean, we're trying to put on a, you know, a vaudeville show. And, and fortunately, we've got Donald Trump. Right. That's great. Fabulous. <laughs> True Democrat. Yeah. Populist. So we were talking, um, <laughs> we talked once before about these things. Uh, in fact, it was about a year ago. And I asked you whether you thought America was finished, given these opinions and analyses. And you said, yes, you thought so. Or what's to that effect? Okay. Well... That's wrong, because the trouble with that is the word America and the word finished. What do we mean by either one of those words? The America of George Washington was a far different place than the America of Abraham Lincoln, which is a far different place from the America of Teddy Roosevelt or the America of Eisenhower or or of Obama. I mean, they, they are different sets of circumstance. What do we mean by America? Do we mean a place that holds out large opportunity for people to make their own way or find their own, follow their own dream? Do we mean a certain kind of a a life 
Because if you take the uh, international measurements of quality of life in terms of longevity, uh, I don't know, there are 20 or 28 categories compiled by the UN, and, and America comes well below many other countries in the world at the moment. The constitutions that have been written around the world in the last 10 years are not taking the American Constitution as a model. Democracy, so-called, is losing its appeal in large parts of the world, certainly in in China, certainly in Russia, certainly in in, uh, parts of Europe. And again, what do we mean by democracy? As I just got finished saying, we, we don't really have democracy in the United States. We have democratic temperament, I think. I mean, the way Americans deal with one another, but even that is changing. And there's been an argument about, a very bitter argument about capital and labor, between capital and labor in the United States for, you know, well over 100 years. And But to read the press, you wouldn't believe that. I mean, they, they, they say we're the, kind of this exceptional nation where there is no social injustice and so on. And we see now, we're seeing this year, really for the first time in recent memory, people beginning to actually notice, get upset by income inequality, by the punishment that the creditors class is imposing on the debtor class in the United States, basically sucking them dry. (laughs) I mean, from the point of view of of the banks and the credit card companies, the American people might as well be cattle in stockyard feed pens in California, and they're giving off toxic gas, and what that toxic gas is debt, and that is what is (laughs) the profit of, of what they call the fire section of the economy, finance, insurance, and real estate. We've developed a rentier class. America is today by no means as fair or free a place as it was, let's say, in 1941 or 1945, even in 1960. When I first came here in the 60s, it was certainly a much more yeah, and the, uh, democratically equal place. So, I mean, you can say America finished as what? I mean, it, you know, I mean, or... I'm not sure that was actually the phrase, but it was yeah, like, what's, yeah. what, what's next? I don't know what's next. I mean, you know, in my darker moments, I think what's next is some form of fascism with a friendly face. There's more and more crowd control, clearly fear on the part of the oligarchy. They're beginning to be essentially, they're afraid of the American people, I think. You see it in the reaction of the police, I mean, to the black unhappiness in the, in, in the streets. You see it in the, the kind of budget, the Republicans, the, the Ryan budget that's on offer where it's more and more and more money for weapons and and, uh, less and less money for infrastructure, for what we call a social safety net, cut food stamps, add missiles. It's a frightened ruling class. And people, any group of people, gets more dangerous when they get more frightened. So I, I, I would not be surprised to see some form of social upheaval because now it's finally beginning to cut into the the middle class. I, you know, three years ago would simply dismiss the idea of revolution of any kind as nonsense. But now the middle class is, is, is beginning to really hurt. You, you read all the statistics and the way that employment is and the way that the redistribution of, not redistribution, it's the sharing of the uh, common enterprise. And I think the signs of fear show up not only in the reactions on the part of the, the heavily armed police, but also the $15 minimum wage in Los Angeles and Seattle and, and here in New York. I mean, that 
the oligarchy doesn't do that unless they're a little bit nervous, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know which way the change will go, but uh, the uh, people will stay, if they're comfortable with a government that they don't respect, it's usually preferable to being uncomfortable under a government that one does respect. And the question is, how many people are, are willing to be a little bit uncomfortable with a government that they might respect? Because in order to get that kind of a government or that kind of a society, a lot of people are going to have to give up a lot. And the, uh, the rich don't usually like to give things up. <laughs> right. And government doesn't usually like to give up power. No, well, the government certainly doesn't like to give up power, as you say, the ambitions of power. The, um, but certainly it doesn't seem like satire has helped very much. In no. time. <laughs> no, maybe not. So, the, uh, no, maybe not. But I'm not sure that that's the function of satire. satire I don't, I don't think it is. Change. I mean, satire, I mean, to, to, to move crowds to action, it's a different kind of rhetoric. Right. Churchill, you know, in 1940, blood, sweat, toil, and tears, right? It's that kind of language that you need, or it's the language of uh, Eugene Debs, let's say, in 1912, when the Socialist Party gets 25% of the vote. Yeah, but I would argue that genuine satirists who are really telling the truth about life as opposed to the version of life which is being sold to us do right. actually... I mean, George had this wonderful thing. He said, when you're making people laugh, if it's about something that they have never laughed at, especially if it's about something that they've never yeah. laughed at, that is when you can change their minds in that instant, when they just that, laugh yeah, uncontrollably. I think that's true. And I, but, and I think that satire like that can prepare people to... Uh, to elect a government they might respect. Yes, and to listen to the rhetoric of somebody like, let's say, uh, Bernie Sanders. Right. Indeed. Who is not himself a satire, a satirist. But revolutions, I think, have to be led by idealists. But the, their audience has to be prepared by satirists. Great. Let's leave it there. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Final Edition Radio Hour. The voices of the Final Edition are performed by Bruce Cherry, Jen Dodd, Jim Earl, Rob Gordon, Tony Hendra, Jeff Hendrick, Dan Vitale, Jeff Chrysler, Barry Lank, John Marshall, Abby Parker, Rachel Rauch, Steve Rosenfield, James Mount, Rob Miller, Kayla Merrill, Andrew Danish, Leslie Shapira, Ann Tuchel, and Darby Worley. Credit to our writers at the Final Edition Radio Hour, Bruce Cherry, Jen Dodd, Jim Earl, Rob Gordon, Tony Hendra, Jeff Hendrick, Abby Parker, Jeff Chrysler, John Marshall, Barry Link, Leslie Shapira, Kirk Weitzman, Kate Knowles, Jeremy Rayburn, and Steve Rosenfield. The Final Edition is produced and directed by Tony Hendra and Jeff Chrysler. West Coast production by Barry Link. Audio edited and engineered by Greg Russ and Andrew Hammond. The Final Edition Radio Hour is the property of the Final Edition LLC. Copyright 2015.